This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hey, hey welcome once again to Disability Law Show. We are good to go. John Scholes here. Martin Willems is doing all the heavy lifting as he does each week, so we're ready to, uh, to get set and go anytime. By the way, you want to reach out to Martin when we're not doing this show. And uh, have your say, have a conversation. It's possible. It's easy. It's uh, 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Again, help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll start to get to your emails and questions here in just a bit. But I want to remind you that uh, you want to listen to the first part of the show. That's where we cover a main topic. Always interesting and helpful as well. We'll do that, uh, that right now. And Martin, I think today you want to get into the three myths surrounding disability claims. So let's uh, let's dive right in there, pal. Number one, expand on this one. Benefits will end after two years of LTD payments. A lot of people think that's how long the policy lasts, right? You know, this is an interesting one because we've spoken about this so many times, but there's still some confusion about this. And I think one of the reasons why is when people get a letter from the insurance company. The insurance company often only refers to the first two years mm-hmm. and provides a definition for what that first two years would be. In other words, what the total disability definition is under the first two years. So I speak to many people on a weekly basis who would say to me, well, I didn't know that my benefits do not necessarily end at the end, at the expiry date of those two years. So few things to be said here. Generally, you would have a group policy. That would be a policy that you would have through your employment with your employer that provides disability coverage should you be disabled from performing the duties of your occupation. Most disability policies, group policies, will have benefits defined in two different ways. The first one would be that for a defined period of time, which generally would be two years, you have to prove that you cannot perform the duties of your own occupation. Mm -hmm. Then that definition changes. And then you have to prove that you cannot perform the duties of any other occupation based on your transferable skill sets. In other words, your education, your training, or your experience that would pay you an amount roughly the same as your LTD benefit amount, unless the policy defines a different percentage. So it doesn't end at the expiry of the own occupation period it carries on but the definition changes and if you do qualify for benefits into what is called the any occupation phase in other words after those two years theoretically you should be entitled to benefits up until the age of 65. Now, just a few general comments on that. Mm -hmm. As I said, most disability policies, group policies, provide for the own occupation to be two years. Some do have it as one year. Others may have it as three years. Others, the Cadillac ones, which I would call them, would be five years. But the most, the vast majority of them would be two years. Some policies do have an end date where benefits may end at the age of 60, but again, most of them end at the age of 65. And there are a few policies, these are not great policies, where benefits actually do end after two years. Um, I have seen a few of them, there aren't many of them, they're scarce, but it always comes down to looking at what the policy provides. That policy that I'm speaking about is a contract, and it's a contract between your employer and the insurance company. And that contract has rights and obligations and terms. It will have a schedule of benefits. And that schedule of benefits will define 
what the the criteria would be right. for benefits for LTD. When does it end? How long is the unoccupation period? Whether it has other provisions, etc. So for anybody out there listening, if you have if you think that your benefits are ending because the insurance company has said to you, well, you've reached the end of the unoccupation period, please do not assume that that is in the meaning of that is that you don't have any entitlement further. You very likely do, but it will be at the change of definition. In other words, where it changes from own occupation to any occupation, where we will have to review what the policy says. But again, I would say 99% of them would have benefits payable to the age of 65 provided that you continue to meet the definition of total disability. All right, got a myth number two surrounding disability claims is this, and you're always fighting this battle. Mental health illnesses do not qualify as a disability under that LTD policy. This may come as a surprise to many listeners that this is noted here as a myth because obviously disability claims most of uh, the vast majority of them these days are based on a mental health disorder or a mental health condition. Mm-hmm. Yet there are still people, and we see the questions come in on a weekly basis, does this condition qualify as a disability or is my anxiety, is that a disability in the meaning of the policy? So the answer to this is a resounding yes. Mental health illnesses do qualify as a disability under the policy. We speak about what is a disability under a disability policy quite often. The diagnosis is important. In other words, if you've been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder or a major depressive disorder or any other, any other mental health disorder, that, that is something but it doesn't yet put you into the definition of total disability. Mm-hmm. What is most important is functional impairment. So the starting point is looking at what is the diagnosis. Then we look at what are the restrictions and limitations that you have as a result of that diagnosis. So many people would say, my doctor says I have depression. I cannot work. I don't understand why the insurance company denied my claim. And the response to that is, well, what more was said? Why can you not work? Because... The position is, and it, to some degree it's true, uh, there are people out there working with depression, taking medication and they're able to work. Why is it that you, with your depression, cannot work? And that's why we look at things like inability to focus, inability to concentrate, cannot multitask, um, low mood swings, low motivation, don't want to leave the house, you may have anxiety attacks, you may have panic attacks. All of those things are important to detail when you do submit a claim for a mental health disorder so that at the other end, the insurance company, when the case manager adjudicates the claim, they can see why it is that you and your doctor say that you cannot work because of your mental health disorder. But please don't be discouraged if you have a mental health disorder and thinking that, well, I'm never going to be approved because I don't think mental health cases qualify as disabilities under mental uh, under disability policies they definitely do now again like with everything nothing is ever just black or white there's gray there are certain policies and these would be more so individual policies which may require may provide that there are certain excluded conditions i've never seen a group policy that has any of those exclusions so if you have a mental health illness and you're concerned that you cannot work have a discussion with your doctor. If the discussion leads to a decision that you cannot work any longer, then you submit your claim to the insurance company. And if that claim were to be denied, 
don't think it is because the insurance company will not pay a mental health illness claim. They often deny those cases and then you know where to go. You come to us because we will review the documentation, we will review what the doctor has said, we will review the claim and we will review the denial letter and then discuss with you your options so that you can make an informed decision as to how to proceed. You know, along those lines, Martin, I mean, uh, you know, since the pandemic, I mean, it's it's still there, but not to the same degree as it was in the last two and a half years. But obviously an uptick in uh, claims when it comes to the physical. Have you also noticed the uptick as a result of mental illness as well because of the pandemic? That's such a great question. And yes, the answer is yes. We have seen an uptick. You know, about three weeks ago, I think I was watching a CBC news program. I don't remember which program it was on, which news station it was on, but I think it was a gentleman from one of the insurance companies, the CEO, who was speaking about a 27% increase yeah. that they had seen in relation to mental health illness, disability claims, and how they were trying to manage this. So it, it definitely is on the uprise. I mean, there's so many uncertainties Currently, I mean, the pandemic didn't help things, but people are stressed about the inflation rates. People are stressed about other things that's happening in the world. You you hear it from people when you speak to them, um, and it is concerning. I'm sure everybody is concerned about this, and I'm sure the insurance companies are somewhat concerned about this, that there is an uptick in the percentages of mental health illness claims. And again, that is so important to have this discussion because many of these are denied, and people living with mental health illnesses are already stressed. So when this yeah. new denial now comes, they don't have finances. They're struggling to find treatment out there because the mental health system, or the, well, the medical system is under such strain that a denial on top of that really does not help things. So it makes things even worse. And sometimes people feel they just want to give up. And yeah. what I want to say to them and their family members listening to this potentially, if you have someone in your family or if you have a friend, who is struggling with mental health illness and who has been denied disability, please have them contact us because there is hope and we can discuss it. I hear from people so often when we have a discussion with them, they would say to mm -hmm. me, I'm so happy I spoke with you because it, yep. it, it may not resolve the situation, but at least I know and I understand what to do and what my options are. So we offer free stock consultations in BC, Alberta, Ontario. Reach out to us. Let's get to the third one before the break. We're talking about three myths when it comes to surrounding disability claims. My doctor says there's no point fighting the insurance company's decision to deny my claim as they always win. You know, I, I, it's strange to have this one in there, but it does happen. And I've heard this on occasion that people would say to me, my doctor says, oh, this is going to be such a hassle. Uh, just, just go back to work or just leave it. Um, no, no, don't leave it. That, that's, not, that's not true. Uh, and I think some doctors may say things like this because they get so frustrated with their clients or their patients being denied disability claims with the fact that they have to continuously complete forms and provide records that they feel they feel despondent and think, well, just I'm not going to go through this. That's not a true statement. Insurance companies definitely do not always win, especially when we get involved, right? So if, if your doctor says that, again, don't accept that as truth. Reach out to us. And anybody says that to you, that's not true. Reach out to us. Like I said before, we can have a discussion with you because when we get involved and we may file a legal claim, we yeah. level the playing field a little bit, right? We give you leverage. Where with just submitting a claim, you have no leverage. So get us involved. We will deal with the insurance company. 
We'll take a short break. Get to lots more of your emails. Uh, they're coming up right now to send one along. It may appear on this show, maybe a future show. Help at disabilityrights.ca. That's how you do that. And the phone number anytime to Martin and his team, one 821 5900 Short break and right back with lots more of the Disability Law Show. Stand by. This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. All right, thanks for hanging in there. Disability Law Show, we continue. Martin Willems is your guy, especially Alberta and BC. You want to uh, get on top of it. Uh, he's, he's your guy. Just make that phone call. If it's just a question you have or want to have a lengthier conversation between what we can talk about here on air, you're always invited to do so. one Five five eight two one fifty nine hundred help at disabilityrights.ca. That is the email address we're going to right now. Uh, first one for uh, for the show. Martin says, "Hey guys, I'm forty three years old. I've been on LTD for my job, receiving benefits at fifty percent of my pre disability pay since two thousand eighteen. I also received CPP disability as of twenty twenty." I will most likely be unable to work for the rest of my life. I bought a condo eight years ago. I'm finding it difficult to pay my mortgage and bills on my disability income. And I'm considering moving in with my parents and renting my condo out to help with the mortgage payments. I don't want to lose my condo, but I also can't afford to pay it for much longer. Do you know if there are implications to my CPP disability and or insurance company benefit payments if I rent my place out? Is that considered income if I'm doing it just to stay afloat? Thank you. That's a fantastic question. It is a fantastic question, and thank you for reaching out and sending that question to us because it is, again, something that we hear quite often. People are concerned. What can they do and what can they not do? You know, the disability benefit payments, as this person is saying, it's only 50% of their pre-disability income. So they've lost 50%. And cost of everything is rising. So people Mm -hmm. are concerned they're struggling. When we look at the policy, again, it's a contract. We have to see what the contract provides with respect to what is termed offsets. Offsets refer to certain types of income that an insurance company can deduct from the long-term disability payment. For the most part, these would be CPP disability payments, which this person is already receiving, and that would be deducted from the LTD benefit. It may be certain retirement benefits that you could receive. It all depends on what the language of the policy is. What can be deducted? If you look at rental income, so this person is thinking about moving in with their parents and then renting out the condo, That's not employment income, right? So CPP disability is based on premiums that you made or contributions that you made while you were working. WorkSafe BC is the same thing. Renting out a condo, that's not employment income. So I, in my opinion, would say that is not, should not be an offset. It's the same as somebody was living in their house and they had a tenant in the basement. It's income in the sense that you have to report it to CRA. It's taxable. But it's not employment income in terms of a disability policy. The situation would be different if you had 10 different condos that you were renting yeah. out. Business. And you were, exactly, you were managing yeah. a business or you were doing property management, looking after them, doing some reparations and things like that. Um, so each case has to be analyzed on its own facts. But simply renting out one condo and getting income to pay the mortgage I do not see that as an offset under the policy. And for the purposes of CPP disability, I don't see that as an offset either. Not that there are any, or that there are any offsets. 
under CPP, they're looking at whether you're entitled or whether you're able to perform employment and therefore if you can earn a certain amount of money. So I don't see this as an impact on either of them. That's my opinion. That's CPP thing we often talk about on the show too, Martin. It's also it's a good safeguard. I mean, you have to qualify for it. It's from the government, uh, from Canada Pension Plan, if you qualify. But it is also a good safety net if you do end up getting uh, you know the knock in your door from your own insurance company about being cut off. You have that there as well. And it's also a good thing to say, hey, look, the government whose test is more onerous, you know, uh, debatable than than your test. I'm getting it from them. Why am, why are you cutting me off, right? I think that's a very good point, John. You know. Many people would say to me, oh, I'm not, I don't think I'm ever going to qualify for CPP. It's so difficult. Well, if our position is, if the government does support your claim, and if Service Canada does accept that you are disabled within the meaning of the CPP disability legislation, then of course the insurance company should do it as well. It becomes the circular argument because when I'm dealing with insurance companies and their lawyers, they would say, well, they're looking at an entirely different criteria, a different set of facts when they're approving the claim. That may be true to some degree. Having said that, it's not easy to get CPP disability benefits. You have to prove that you have a condition that is severe and prolonged to the extent that you cannot perform the duties of any gainful occupation. That literally is the definition. And it's an onerous one. So if you do qualify for CPP, you're right. It does give you some safeguard because once it's approved, it doesn't generally get denied again. And it has the added benefit of being increased annually um, by a small percentage, but at least it keeps going up, which is great um, in the context of at least getting some money. And for the most part, insurance companies and their policies provide that the insurer cannot deduct the increases from the benefit amount. In other words, they only deduct Hmm. the base amount. But again, it all goes back to the language of the policy. Want to get to another email? It says, uh, "Hey Martin, I'm in uh, receipt of LTD pay, uh, benefits from RBC, and I recently completed an update from that. Uh, included a very broad authorization, allowing John, them to collect. Yep. I, 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 can we cut that? Because I think I should have probably not included the insurance company's RBC? name there. Yeah. 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 Okay. Sure. I was just thinking that sure. myself. Okay. Yeah, okay. We'll sure. just we'll go back. Okay. 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 Here we go. Let's get to another email. Martin says, uh, hey, guys, I'm in receipt of LTD benefits from my insurer, and I recently completed an update form that included a very broad authorization to collect pretty much any type of information. I was not comfortable signing the authorization, so I advised him I would not sign it, and I revoked the previous authorizations I had signed. But I also stated that I would sign authorization to allow them to obtain information from third parties on a case-by-case basis. They have now requested that I obtain records uh, myself from at least five different doctors. They've given me two and a half weeks to provide these records to them. I feel that I do not have the capacity to take this on given the limitations of my disability, and also that the time frame is completely unrealistic. Am I obligated to collect these records, or can I tell them that I am not able to do so, and I will sign the authorizations they need to collect them themselves? What do you think about that, pal? It's an interesting question, and you know what? Coincidentally, I was dealing with something similar uh, this week as well from uh, somebody who also had questions about authorizations. Mm-hmm. The insurance country, most policies will have something called cooperation as a term where it would say that the insured meaning the person making the claim in this case it would be this person um, that you have to cooperate by providing whatever the insurance company requests to properly adjudicate the claim now of course those requests have to be reasonable it has to be something that makes sense that they would need to adjudicate the claim 
Medical records, that does make sense. I agree. Um, it depends on the, the time frame, the scope of the request. I don't think blanket authorizations really make sense. Having said that, if it is for a defined period of time, considering when the disability began, and if it is aimed at doctors who are involved in the treatment of the disability, I think those are reasonable requests and insurance companies do request records from doctors. In this case, the person denied, revoked the authorizations and the insurance company, you can just see, is now trying to be difficult because they're saying, you need to provide us with these records within two and a half weeks. That is not realistic. They know it's not realistic. Uh, I've seen many, many claims where the insurance companies would also send letter after letter to the treating physician or other physician to try and get records. Doctors are busy. Their offices are busy. They're not going to jump the moment that you send a request to them. That's just the nature of the beast. So you do have to follow up repeatedly. Um, I don't like the time frame that has been set, but going back to the ultimate question, is this person obligated to get the records for the insurance company or can this person sign authorizations for the insurance company to request these records themselves? I think the latter is appropriate. If the time frame is appropriate and if these requests are directed to doctors who are treating the person, um, depending on the circumstances, I think it is appropriate for the insurance company to go out and obtain these, especially if it is impacting. Yeah. the person who wrote this email that they don't need this added stress and they definitely don't need to be given a deadline especially if it's a mental health claim the worst thing you can do is say to somebody who's living with mental health illnesses you have this deadline otherwise they're going to start wondering what's going to happen so i think leave it over to them to have those requests as long as these requests are reasonable and in relation to the disability Again, anytime you want to reach out to Martin and his team via email, that is help at disabilityrights.ca and the phone number 1-855-821-5900. Another resource for you to ask questions. It's anonymous as well. Searchable database, meaning your question may have been asked something similar in the past as well called mydisabilityquestions.com. That's free and anonymous for you to use. Get on to uh, Sandra's email here. It says, guys, I've had depression on and off throughout my life. At least I feel I was depressed. I started a new job in late 2022. Not long after I started, I started to have serious depression symptoms. I could not think, focus, or sleep well. I went to my doctor seven months after I started my new job, and he diagnosed me with depression. I went off work and received medical EI benefits. When I applied for LTD, my claim was denied. As the insurer said, my disability was pre-existing. As I reported to the insurer and my doctor that I had ongoing depressive symptoms for most of my life, However, I never saw any doctor or counselor for what I thought was depression. The first time I saw a doctor in relation to depression was when I went off work a few months ago. Is there anything I can do or is that insurer right? No, and I think I can speak about this for hours and hours, to be honest. Uh, disability claims under a policy. You have to prove that you have a disability, which is totally disabling within the meaning of the policy. That's on the part of the, the person making the claim. That policy also may have certain exclusions. And an exclusion is something like a pre-existing condition exclusion. In those cases, the insurance company has the duty to prove that the exclusion, exclusionary language applies. A pre-existing condition, and we've spoken about this so many times, a pre-existing condition in, the, in just general terms, you think is something that existed before. And that's true. In general terms, that's what it means. But when you look at a disability policy, pre-existing condition 
that phrase is a defined term. And most policies will have a pre-existing condition exclusion. It almost always applies if the person goes off work within the first year of having had coverage, which happened to Sandra. She went off work after seven months. So then the pre-existing condition becomes an operative term. The insurance company then investigates whether Sandra's disability is related to a pre-existing condition. But the, here is the important part, as that term is defined in the policy. The fact that Sandra says she has felt that she had depression throughout her life, but she never saw a doctor for that depression, what she thought was depression, only saw a doctor when she went off work this time. Is that pre-existing? Yes, it may be pre-existing in the context of having felt that it was a pre-existing condition, but in the meaning of the contract, I seriously doubt whether that would qualify as a pre-existing condition. The reason why I say that and I haven't seen the pre-existing condition exclusion in this policy, but most of them will provide that if there were a specific period of time, and it may be the 30, the 90 days before she had coverage, it may be the 90 days after she had coverage, it may be for some other period of time. Generally, these policies would say that if you Two had minutes. treatment, or if you were prescribed medication, or if you were referred to some other professional, or if there were to be investigations in relation to an illness or a condition that relates directly or indirectly to your disabling condition, then it is a pre-existing condition and your claim is excluded. None of these things happened. Sandra wasn't seen by a doctor. She didn't take prescription medication, at least it doesn't appear to be so from what she's saying to us. And she wasn't sent for any investigation. So I seriously doubt whether this qualifies as a pre-existing condition under the terms of this policy. And again, the message to everybody out there, and I've said this many times, if you have a condition that you or your doctor may feel is pre-existing and you have applied for the disability claim and the insurance company denies your claim, don't just accept that they are correct mm -hmm. because we have to see whether the disability that you have is indeed a pre-existing condition. It needed to have happened. You needed to have gone off work within the first year. That's the first issue. And secondly, we need to see what the pre-existing condition definition in the policy is because there are many times that we can still argue that even if some of those terms do qualify, it very unlikely is a pre-existing condition within the meaning of the policy. So what we do is we look at the denial, we look at your medical records, and we look at the, term, the terms in the policy to see whether all of those things actually do um, abide by the insurance company's decision. And many times they do not. Sandra, nicely done. We're going to leave it at that. I hope you got enough information there. If not, uh, you can always reach out with that phone call. Ready for that one? one 821 5900. Brian, uh, you're up next. Thanks, pal, for sending your email along. You can do like Brian, get yours possibly on a future show. If not, uh, Martin and his team always answer them. And that is help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue the show. This is the Disability Law Show, and we're coming right back. This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. 
Welcome back. Disability Law Show. Martin Willems is your guy anytime. He's got a great team with him as well. They're always ready to answer your questions via email or phone call. We do the emails here on this show, of course. It's help at disabilityrights.ca. Simple, right? And the phone number, anytime, toll free, of course, 1-855-821-5900. Call on your own time and have more of a lengthy chat with one of Martin's crew or Martin himself. Always willing to pick up the phone and have a, have a talk. Brian, as promised, man, thanks for your email. We're going to get to it right now. It's Guys, I suffered a serious injury a few years ago, which resulted in my leg being amputated below the knee. I used to work as a heavy equipment operator. The insurer accepted my claim for the first two years and then denied my claim, saying that I can work in another occupation. Before they denied me, they provided vocational rehab where they let me do some training and software. I'm 55 years old. I struggled through the training. I do not believe there's any realistic chance of my working at a desk job. I've always worked as an equipment operator. I'm having phantom pains and continue to see a doctor and counselor in relation to my PTSD symptoms I have had as a result of the accident. I don't think I work in any other job would be uh, like some advice. Uh, What do you think about that, Martin? Tough go for Brian. It is a tough go for Brian. Jeez. You know, this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of the show, the definition of total disability changes. So what happened here is the insurance company accepted that Brian obviously could not work in his job as a heavy equipment operator. But as is often the case, when it is approaching the end of that two-year time frame, the insurance company invested some money so that they can get some evidence to show that Brian is no longer disabled within the meaning of the policy when it gets to that change of definition. Now, Brian has to show that he is unable to perform the duties of any other occupation, but that would pay him a certain amount of money. Brian is 55 years old, he has phantom pains, and he continues to have symptoms of PTSD, which relates back to the injury that he had, and that's completely understandable. Is it realistic? for Brian to now be able to be put in a position where they'd say, well, you just go work at a desk job. doesn't sound to be the case. So uh, what I would suggest, and this is what the question that Brian is asking, we need to figure out what medical evidence we have in support of this claim, that Brian has in support of this claim. And that means going back to the doctor and having a discussion as to the issues that he has, not just with respect to the phantom pain, but also with respect to the PTSD symptoms that he has. I'm sure that may impact his thinking, his concentration, his focus. Uh, I've had cases like this where a person had phantom pain, was working with a prosthetic, but also as a result of sitting for long periods of time, that created further problems because the the, the uh, advice generally is that the person needs to keep moving when they have a an amputation because it may impact their hips. So. I'm not a doctor, but I've seen this before. What I would suggest, as I said, go back to your own physician and get their support, whether they agree you are unable to perform the duties of any other occupation in a realistic sense. I mean, you cannot just give somebody some computer training and say, off you go, you go work and earn $60,000 a year now, considering that Brian still has all these other issues. Clearly, it's not just physical. It's also mental health issues and mental health issues spill into cognitive cognitive thinking cognitive faculties Um, it is always crucial to have your doctors on board but what i would suggest to brian in addition to what i've said is um, maybe have a discussion with one of our lawyers in our team as you've said we've got a good team here in uh, bc and also in alberta 
and I'm sure that we can assist by potentially proceeding with a legal claim against the insurance company because I don't expect that they're simply going to overturn their position and we are there to assist with claims exactly like this where the insurance company may have said we think that you can now go work in a different occupation we may have accepted that you cannot work in your own occupation but surely there's something else out there that you can do don't accept that decision as the correct one reach out to us and we will assist you in fighting the insurance company it's interesting too martin you meant that sixty thousand dollars a year and i don't know what brian was earning as that uh, machine operator but this uh, this whole thing of commensurate income kind of throws people for a loop as well detail that for me a little bit before we move on it's a very good question you know insurance policies as i said before it may detail in the any occupation phase or definition a percentage so it may say any occupation for which you've got the transferable skill pay you 75% of your pre-disability income. That would be a good policy. Others may say 60% or 67%. Others may say 50%. If the policy is silent on it, then we default back to what the common law position is. And it may be something between 60 to 75%. Often it's just similar to what the LTD benefit amount is. So it's not the same as the benefit as the income that you had earned before strange though because i always use the word commensurate commensurate generally would mean something similar to but it's not it is something that would pay you same as the ltd benefit amount so it's not just is there a job out there that you can do and the reason why i was throwing out sixty thousand dollars was as a heavy equipment operator i think they do fairly well um 67 of that income may be in that range it's the same as we've often used. You cannot tell a neurosurgeon to go work at a minimum wage job. It sure. really needs to be something that is commensurate to what you were earning before. And I've seen many cases denied at this juncture where the insurance company may say to somebody, we think you can go work in a different occupation. But they don't always look at does that different occupation, if the person were to be able to work in it, would that occupation pay a commensurate wage and that is something that's often lost and we always look at that when the insurance company denies the claim at the change of definition very good stuff brian uh, appreciate you reaching out we'll start on sandeep's email here coming to us from surrey and we'll uh, probably take a break and return to it but sandeep says i have a seizure disorder i used to work in management the insurer denied my claim after one year nothing in my condition changed when i'm not at work i feel okay my doctor believes i'm disabled because of the risk of a seizure the insurer says I'm not disabled because the risk of the seizure does not represent a disability within the meaning of the policy. I don't feel this is right uh, because I have the seizure disorder and I often feel that it may be coming on, but then doesn't. I have developed significant anxiety, always feeling panic that it may come on. This feels that it is a con- that's consuming my life. I feel that going back to work not only will create a higher likelihood of that I may have a seizure, but will also increase my anxiety and panic. I'm not sure how I'd be able to focus. Is there a way to explain this to the insurer so my benefits can be reinstated? Well, Sandeep, you know, it, one it's, it, this is a tough one again, because when you look at the terms of definition for a disability policy for total disability, you have to prove that you have a sickness that impairs you from performing the duties. So in this case, I what I'm hearing the insurance company saying is, you have a seizure disorder, but when you're not having the seizure, you're okay to work. Therefore, you should be able to go back to work. Now, that, that's a strange approach to take. Um, is there anything that he can do about this? 
same as with Brian, go to your family physician. Because what needs to be done here is, as a result of the seizure, he has now also developed anxiety and panic attacks. And that's understandable, because he's so concerned that he's going to have a seizure, that that is weighing on his mind and clearly appearing his ability to focus. That information needs to be communicated to the insurance company. Whether they will actually accept that, and that goes back to an appeal, I think we should get involved, potentially pursue a legal claim here, because the insurance company very unlikely is going to accept that as an appeal. Um, but what we would do during the course of the legal claim is get the doctor to opine not just on the risks of a seizure disorder, but also on the other effects, the cognitive effects, the mental health effects, which all globally will likely impact Sandeep's ability to perform his duties as a manager and potentially in any other occupation as well. If you cannot focus and concentrate, how are you able to work? And with that, we'll take uh, one more short break and get to more of your emails. You want to send one along may appear on a future show as well, help at disabilityrights.ca. And that phone number to reach Martin and his team anytime, toll free, 1-855-821-5900. We continue. This is the Disability Law Show. Hang on. This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of C. And welcome back, Disability Law Show. Still some minutes to go. Thank you ahead of time for all your emails that are coming in. If we don't get to it this hour, we'll get to it on a future show for sure. But continue to send them along because they always get answered and replied to beyond this radio show, and that is help at disabilityrights.ca. Martin and his team are all over this as well. You want to use that phone number, one 821 5,900 as well. Selma is up next. Selma says, guys, my sister has various uh, mental health conditions and she's gifted. I believe she uh, may be on the ASD. She has always excelled academically, but also used to have mood swings, many ups and downs. She suffered a mental health breakdown a year ago and has been receiving disability benefits from the insurance company. She used to work as a software developer. She's 33 years old and this is the only line of work she ever had. She sees various mental health care treatment providers. Her job was stressful and required intense focus and concentration. Outside of work, she has had various hobbies which fit uh, with her personality. She dances religiously for hours per day. She used to dance since she was little. I know she sees it as a form of, of treatment and so do her doctors. They actually encourage it. The insurer recently questioned her on this and we got the feeling that the insurance is looking at her ability to dance for hours as being inconsistent with the image they have of someone who is depressed and cannot work. She's not been denied, but we're wondering what to do if she is denied. So they kind of see the writing on the wall possibly coming up. Martin, what do you think? Thank you, Selma. Uh, I've seen cases like this before in the context of not these particular fact patterns, but when a person is living with a mental health illness like depression or anxiety, some people may have withdrawn socially. The doctors, the treatment providers, the counselors, the therapists, the psychologists all try to get the person to reintegrate into society, to do things that may provide them joy, to have the endorphins flowing again, so that they don't sit inside the house, that they don't sit with their thoughts, that they try and get out and do things. It sounds like that is what is happening here. Uh, Selma's sister is clearly somebody who was gifted, um, but suffered a mental health breakdown. She was working in a high cognitive demanding job. We have to remember that. So she was focused. She was probably doing software development, whatever it was. 
Um, and now she is dancing a lot. She's doing things that the doctors are recommending her to do. It's something that gives her joy. Does that mean she's no longer disabled within the meaning of the policy? No, it doesn't. It definitely does not. It's, and it's, it's great that Salma's sister has been upfront about this with the insurance company, telling them what she is doing. They may also see it in the clinical records. So I've seen situations where a person may be going, it's, it's sometimes strange things that people go out to do when they have a mental health illness, but it is done because the doctors recommend it. They're trying to push them outside of their, of their comfort level to reintegrate, to do things that may provide them some joy. Because if they do not, the alternative is that their condition is not going to improve or at least have any chance of improvement, and they're doing what the doctors are recommending, which is another thing that is required under the policy. You have to follow through with recommended treatment advice. And if it is to maintain your activities of daily living, to maintain your hobbies, to maintain anything that may provide you with some improvement, that is what the focus should be. And if the insurer were to deny the claim based on this issue, that she is following through with her hobbies, on the advice of her doctors, the next thing that you do is you get in touch with us and we will help you with a claim against the insurance company. We will be the voice, we will be the sp spokesperson, and you can focus on your treatment. Selma, nicely done. Going to move to Selena now, coming in from uh, Kelowna. Says, guys, I live in BC. I was recently diagnosed with MS. I have no family in BC. My symptoms include brain fog and now depression as well. My family live in Saskatchewan. Since uh, my diagnosis, I feel very vulnerable and alone. I've only been receiving benefits from the insurance company since December of 2022. I feel I need to move back to Saskatchewan. I'm worried how the insurance company will react to that. If I do not move, I'm worried that I will struggle to manage myself uh, by myself if my symptoms worsen. Any advice for me? Thank you for that, Selena. Um, just thinking about that, that, that is, MS is a serious diagnosis. We know that. It's multiple sclerosis. Uh, many people live with MS, some uh, just carry on through with the symptoms, but if there's a relapse, things can get worse. Living by yourself with a serious diagnosis and being in, uh, under the thumb of the insurance company can be a stressful situation. And on top of that now, Selena has depression as well. I hear this question quite often when people would say to me, um, I may want to move. My family don't live here. I want to get back to where I may have some family support. I don't know what Selena's age is. I don't know how significant the restrictions and limitations are as a result of the MS. Of course, there's always the possibility that these may become worse. And I think that's what Selena's thinking about. What do I do if I can no longer manage my activities of daily living and I have no family support? We go back to the wording of the policy. The insurance company may look at this and think, well, if you just move or if you go away, you're abandoning your position. That may be a factor, but ultimately, does the policy provide that Selena cannot move back to her province, no where she used to live? It does not. Policies often speak about a person traveling outside of the country. Sometimes the policy is silent on that, and if the policy does have the wording that you cannot travel, it may have a specific period of time 
and it may be that you have to ask the insurance company or at least tell them that you're planning on traveling and maybe get their advice if you or their, their support if you're going to be traveling outside of the country but moving from one province to another one i don't see any issue with that at least in terms of the wording of the policy again the insurer may look at it as an abandonment of the position but there is a sound reason for why this is happening there's a good explanation. Selena has no support, and if she moves back to her family, hopefully she will have that support. But it doesn't affect whether she's disabled uh, within the meaning yeah. of the policy. Again, Selena, thanks for that uh, that email. I know you're probably going to follow up over the phone call if that uh, question wasn't answered, which Martin does a hell of a job of doing those. You can always do that, and you as well. Though that we're just about to wrap for another show. And that phone number to reach out, one 821 5900 Again, one 821 5900 that email address we always use every show is help at disabilityrights.ca. And again, for uh, questions to be asked on your smartphone or uh, your tablet, even your uh, your desktop, that's fine. Anonymously, by the way, mydisabilityquestions.com. That's a beauty because it's got a searchable database, which means a previous question to yours that's similar will come up and save you some time. If not, leave the question there. Martin and his team will get to it. Again, mydisabilityquestions.com. And we'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show. Thanks for listening. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.